you Psalm 115 to start off with today. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. Listening today, let the glory of your name be the passion of this church.
go back to that chorus. Let, we did this in worship practice this morning, and so let's, let's, it worked, I think. Let's do it again. Um, you got the chorus, let the, let, the saving, let, the, let the glory of your name. There you go. Let's, let's read this together. This will be our prayer. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe you're all to us. Lord God, we just uh, pray that with all sincerity today. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to, not allow us, that you would guide us, lead us to worship you in spirit and in truth. That when we walk out of here, uh, Lord, that there has been a, a, a fragrant offering offered up to you this morning um, because we've, we've done uh, everything we can do with all the passion we have, with all the order we have, with everything we know biblically. We've just turned it over to you and, and, and worshiped you and studied your word. And, and we walked out of here a little bit different, a little bit more Christ-like, we pray, than when we came. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. If you would grab one of those uh, connection cards, uh, and uh, especially if you're a first or second time guest, we would love to know. Um, I tell you what, God has just uh, overwhelmed us with uh, first and second time, well, first time guests, I guess you would say. Second time guests were once a first time. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, the uh, you can't be a second time guest without, anyway, uh, with guests and uh, with visitors, and, and we just praise God for that. We, we want to do everything we can to minister to you, and uh, but we can't if we don't know who you is, right? So please, please fill that, that connection card out. And, and we will uh, do all we can to, to answer your questions and minister to you. And then also we have uh, prayer cards to fill out too, and we'll be faithful to pray for those. All right? Well, as um, the pastor rolls on with armor, we're going to be on uh, righteousness. And so you'll hear the words righteousness in, all, in every song. You've already heard one that had righteousness in it. And so think about that. Let the Lord uh, just uh, guide your mind to meditate on that that, that characteristic of God, His righteousness. And uh, you'll hear it in every song we do today. Let's sing together. Sad. 
Lord God, we just come before you and we want to continue our worship as we uh, worship through giving. And uh, Lord, may we be joyful givers. May we be uh, just obedient to your word as we give in proportionally of what you blessed us with. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
it is vitally important what we hear preached from this pulpit. Amen? It is vitally important what we sing in this room. We got one more. It's vitally important that the praise team stays with me. I just wish it were another week. (laughs) Praise team. So anyway. And we can't take lightly what we commit to God in song. If we say, I need you at 1030 on Sunday morning, we better meet it at 1030 Monday morning. Amen. Oh! 
Brother David, Miss Cammy stood by you for 40 years. She wouldn't, she wouldn't leave you now. Amen. Oh, Lord is good. Amen. In 1971, a researcher uh, or a chemist named Stephanie Koak discovered a liquid crystalline, and it was called Kevlar. And so from that, of course, its exceptional strength and stiffness led to the invention of actual chemical led to the invention of Kevlar, a synthetic wo that's woven together, that fiber woven together, layered, that its weight had to do with carrying it around, but actually it's five times the tensile strength. Isn't that incredible? And we know full well how many lives have been saved uh, militarily at first uh, from bullets and shrapnel and different things, but also in the police force. We thank the Lord for that kind of invention. Paul will move in this passage from the belt of truth to that which attaches, or he's going to move from the belt of truth to that which actually attaches to the belt of truth, namely the breastplate of righteousness. And in the ancient day, it was a life saving device, much like the Kevlar vest. So the breastplate of righteousness is no less for us a life saving device against our enemy, the devil. So we are employing the armor, right? Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We know what we've looked at from the Word of God. Put on the full armor of God to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we learned about who we're actually wrestling against. Rulers, authorities, cosmic power, spiritual forces. 
And then in verse 14, remember that for the third time we're reminded that the major verb driving the text is stand firm. And how do you stand firm? Well, last week, putting on the belt of truth. This week, it is stand firm by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. I have a one-point sermon. Aren't you thankful for that? Stand firm by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Listen to the passage. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, as we encounter this particular piece of weaponry, remember that it was attached to the belt. And the belt was wrapped around the loins, right? We learned it last week. I will remind you that truth, God's truth, must be personally embraced and then personally applied. And when it is, it's the core strength of the inner man. Remember what David said, I delight in your law, O God. We shall meditate in it day and night, right? To observe all that is in it. Then we shall make our way prosperous and have good success. David reminds us over and over in the Psalms, and of course the New Testament does as well, so we would say the belt of truth has to do with the core, and that being the core of strength in us against the enemy. The breastplate was made of iron or bronze strips. They, were, they overlaid each other, and then held, they were held together in the back by straps of leather. It was designed to be flexible. It was designed to provide great mobility for the ancient warrior. Contrary to some belief, the breastplate also provided protection from the backside. You know, a lot of times we use the Roman stuff, which is wrong, uh, soldier armory. And we talk about, well, you can't backslide because there's no protection on the backside, right, for a believer. But in reality, contrary to that belief, this particular breastplate had to cover you from the back as well because it covered vital organs, heart and, say it, lungs, okay? It was designed to protect the vital organs, especially the heart and lungs. So it was a defense against being stabbed or being pierced by a spear. It was defense against heavy blows and even arrows. So it was vital to protect what we might call the thorax. I'm getting schooled in medical terminology. And it's also vital organs that could be struck. And here's what we know about the heart and lungs. That kind of blow is fatal, isn't it? Uh, It brings up the question, what are our spiritual organs? Now, Physically, Kevlar vest, yep, I'm good, as long as you don't hit me in the head, right? And we can deal with the helmet of salvation eventually, but think about the lungs and the heart. Now, it's very important for us to think about heart, because in our world today, we miss the definition. So, when it comes to heart, and that inner part of you that's so vitally important that you don't want to be fatally stabbed through... And I'm referring to spiritual organs, right? We need to think about what is the core of our being. 
if, if the belt of truth is over the core of our strength, right? What about the core of our inner being, who we are? So when you deal with the word heart in the Old and New Testament, we often restrict it to emotions, don't we? We often restrict it to affections. Well, that, it is biblically true, but that's not it, okay? When you're dealing with the word heart in the Bible, the heart is used in Scripture as a definition. It's very broad. It, it is sometimes used generically as the inner life. It is, in its abstract meaning, heart becomes the richest biblical term for the totality of man's inner or immaterial nature. It addresses the man's immaterial personality functions, right? And virtually every immaterial function of man is attributed to the heart. Sometimes the heart is used in reference to our thinking. And you're thinking, how does this thing beating in my chest think? Because that's not what the Bible means. It's not talking about this pumping thing inside of here, right? That's why we often say, let's be careful when we're evangelizing children not to say, ask Jesus into your heart. That's a danger. Why? Because we're not talking about this thing pumping inside of you, keeping you alive. We're talking about the immaterial function of man in its entirety, in its whole. So, for instance, in Genesis 6, it refers to the heart as the thoughts of the heart, in Proverbs, it says the heart of the wise. It says the heart has understanding and insight. Are y'all getting this? There's a difference. There's a huge difference. Other times when you see the word heart used, it emphasizes the affections or the emotion. In other words, heart rejoices, heart grieves, heart can be broken. And then another time it says the heart trembles. Sometimes heart is used to imply function of conscience. For instance, 1 Samuel 24, David's heart was smote, is what the Word of God says. Remember I said that in connection with him and his conscience being moved because he simply cut off the hem of Saul's garment. And he was moved, he was smote in his conscience. 2 Samuel 24, we see David again, he's numbered the people and his heart becomes smitten. So the idea is that his conscience bothered him. So the heart can refer to the inner life in general... The seat of the intellect, thoughts, emotions, or affections, and it can refer to the conscience. Another organ term used in the Bible is kidneys, or in the south, bowels. Bowels, right? It's the way you should say it. The bowels of, for instance, the bowels of compassion. Now, today we understand that that would be a visceral, visceral response to something but back in the day, it was bowels of compassion. What does it mean? It is a deep emotional response. So the idea is also linked to kidneys in the scripture. It is, it is used in terms sometimes for the mind even. So the bowels can have thoughts in the scripture. So the terms are much broader than we think. So I say all that to help you. If the loins represent the core of our strength, then the thorax, which is covered by the breastplate, represents the core of your being, our emotions, affections, and conscience. So this makes up the deepest part of you. And folks, these will be the spiritual organs that need to be protected when you engage the enemy. And all of us have them. Now, here's the scary thing. Your heart, your 
seat of your affections, your emotions, your conscience, according to this text, will be the very focal point that the adversary, the devil, will go after. So, a stab to the heart and the lungs is certain, a certain messenger of death. And in this battle, that is not against flesh and blood, but is against principalities and powers, we have vital spiritual organs that must be protected because if they're struck, they can be struck unto fatality. They can be death blows. So Paul tells us that there is a piece of armor that is indeed designed to help these spiritual organs and to protect them, and it is called the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I read what other commentators say. And does it influence me? Well, of course it does. It's going to influence us because they're, that's what they do. They sit all the time and they deal with the Greek and Hebrew and they write commentaries. I could maybe do that, but I don't have enough time. Because I have sheep in the seats. Right? But a lot of guys have that luxury of just spending time all the time trying to figure out what this particular meaning is and the nuance of that particular meaning. We read all of it. I say all that to tell you this. It's important to note that among contemporary preachers and expositors, the consensus of the belief is that this particular righteousness here, breastplate of righteousness, refers to the ethical or practical righteousness lived out by the believer. Okay? In other words, Marita says it this way, this seems to refer to practical righteousness that is right living, as given to us in Ephesians 4, 24, and Ephesians 5, 29. And it would, it would be put like this. These righteous qualities associated with our new life in Christ uh, reflect that Christ is in us. And we live it out. So we don't give an inch to the enemy in the areas of impurity, lust, greed, or injustice. So the breastplate, in their opinion, is, is righteous character. And even some of the champions of the Reformation actually believed that it was ethical righteousness. One commentator describes it like this. It is loyalty in principle and in action to the very law of God. Righteous living. Personal holiness is what they would say. Now, I've got two objections that, have, that I have to this referring primarily to personal integrity or holiness or uprightness of character. Y'all ready for them? Number one. How effective do you think our integrity and our devout and holy life would be to the defense and attacks of the enemy? That's the first one. Go ahead this morning and put on your character. And see if you can stand. Strap on your integrity. Fasten on your personal holiness and your righteousness. And tell me how much defense you will be against the devil who is far nimbler than you are. He's crafty. Charles Hodge says it like this, and I agree. Many say it's our own righteousness, integrity, or rectitude of mind, but that is no protection. It cannot resist the accusations of conscience. It cannot resist the whispers of despondency, the power of temptation, much less the severity of the law and the assaults of Satan. Another commentator says, No righteousness of our own could be proof against Satan. Since it is always still imperfect. It would be promptly pierced through. Our righteousness, of the, our righteousness and our good works ever need Christ's righteousness to cover up all of our imperfections. That's well said. 
What good would my own imperfect, imperfect holiness and my spotty righteousness do to protect me from the attacks of the enemy? So, the battle is coming, and I have to say, well, I'm about to get on my armor, and I'm going to pull out the breastplate of my own righteousness, and I'm going to put it on. Or my righteous deeds. You can quickly realize that there are holes in it. We've got holes in that breastplate. Instead of bronze and iron strips, it's made up of silly putty. We feel this. We sense this. It begins to droop on us, and it's supposed to hold on onto us. So if you're a child of God, I think this morning, as I read Breastplate of Righteousness, my own conscience will testify that if I try to put on my own righteous deeds or my own integrity as a defense against the enemy, it's going to only serve like a spider web to the enemy. So how does Satan operate? This, by, this I'm going to tell you may be the most important sermon you've ever heard. Just hold on for that, okay, until the end. So don't lose your thought. Stay with me. How does Satan operate? Well, he says, uh, so you call yourself a Christian. What about the way you lived yesterday? Is that how he operates? You better believe it. You say you're a child of God. Where's your walk? We know to talk to talk is one thing, but what about walking to walk? You say you really love holiness. The enemy says to you, I don't see it. So I don't believe this is the primary, primary meaning of righteousness. Okay, Does it flow out of it? Absolutely. But I think our enemy would say, go for it. Go on out on the battlefield with what you think is your own righteousness. Come on out against me with your own personal integrity and see how far you get. I'll pick you apart piece by piece and show you where all the holes are. If the breastplate is going to protect us against the enemies of our souls then this breastplate must be made of something else or someone else, right? Arnold says it refers both to a deepening appreciation of God's gracious conferral of the gift of righteousness and to the qualifications of moral integrity. I can go with that statement, but my primary belief is this is conferral righteousness. This is righteousness credited to your account that's not yours, but given to you by someone else. Right? So, here's my second objection. Took a while to get there, right? Here's my second objection. And it's going to be what the Word of God says in Isaiah. I told you early on that every piece of this armor, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah, wore it. So go back, please, to Isaiah 59, 17. This, this is my second objection. Isaiah 59, 17. He put on... A righteousness as a breastplate. That's good, isn't it? It is, because he put it on. Every piece of the armor has correspondence to the Messiah in the Old Testament. He puts on righteousness, and he puts it on like a breastplate. What does that mean? It means that our Messiah comes, and he lives righteously. Righteousness was his character through and through. And the Lord Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father's will and to the law of God. His entire character and nature were marked by righteousness and in conformity, full conformity and fulfillment of the just requirements of all the law, which you could not live. Okay? Jesus came and not only lived righteously, that's character, but righteousness was also his mission. Are y'all listening? Righteousness was his mission. Do you remember? At his baptism. 
he permits John the Baptist to baptize him and says something like this. I permitted at this time to fulfill all righteousness. He comes into the world as the incarnate God, the suffering servant, to do the will of his father. The holy will of obeying him in every command. And that was his mission and that was his purpose. He will later say on the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Now you're listening. I hear a few of you listening. So when Jesus puts on righteousness as a breastplate, he puts it on in the sense that his character is fully conformed to it, but he also fulfills it. And why does Jesus have to come into this world to fulfill righteousness? He comes to fulfill it in your place. He comes to fulfill it in my place. And why does Jesus have to come into this world to fulfill it in our place? And so when he puts on the breastplate of righteousness, or when you do this, you're doing nothing less than putting on Jesus Christ. Put on Christ, as it says in Colossians. He is our righteousness. All right, Jeremiah. Flip over there, Jeremiah 23. You need to lay your eyes on this. One of the names of God is Yahweh Sid Canoe. Yahweh Sid Canoe. It's Hebrew, okay? Just relax. It is Yahweh our righteousness. For some of you, if you want the transliterated form, Jehovah is our, say it, righteousness. Where does that come from? One of the names of God is found in Jeremiah 23, verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord Yahweh is our righteousness. Sid Canoe. He is our righteousness. So, in this passage, I don't believe he's telling us to wear our protective gear and it's our integrity. It is put on the Lord Jesus Christ who is, in fact, your righteousness. Put on Christ. His righteousness is the only righteousness that can withstand the attacks and the righteousness that he fulfilled on our behalf, listen, is actually ours. It is ours. So I understand the breastplate of righteousness here to be, here's a term for you, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, I know that's a big word, and we kind of, but it's no bigger word than geometry. It's no bigger word than you learn at school, kids. Trigonometry. What is that anyway? I took it in high school, and I can't remember one thing about it. But I learned it, right? So imputed righteousness. We might say, given to our credit. Credited to your account. We may say, conferral from one person to another, okay? Now, I want to ask you a question. Could you explain, young people or church family, imputed righteousness? Could you? I've got another question for you. And although the word imputed righteousness is not found in the Bible, this one is. Could you explain justification? Could you? If somebody walked up to you as an unbeliever and said this, Paul says that when we're justified, we have peace with God. I want to have peace with God. So what in the world is justification? Could you as a believer tell someone who is lost how they can be right with God? That is what that means. Job said in Job 9 verse 2, How is it that man can be in the right before God? 
Folks, I think that's a very important question. As a matter of fact, there is no more important question in all the world than that one. How can I be right with God? So, could you explain that? Well, people are hard-pressed in our day to do that. Because we like to wax eloquent about a lot of things, but justification is not one of them. Is it? How can a sinner be made right with God? We like end-time discussions. I mean, you bring up Jack Van Impey and you're like, Woo! Yes, sir. Eschatology. I'm all over it. Jesus is coming back. There's, there's oil missing in Arab countries. and Here he's coming back, right? Or we like to talk about social issues. Or we like to talk about is there a revival taking place down the road somewhere. But justification by faith alone in Christ alone, we don't talk about that too much. But have you stopped long enough to consider the importance that the Bible puts on being right with God? Have you stopped long enough to think about that terminology of justification? Why? Because the Bible is replete with it, and that is the central part of all of Paul's theology. Justification. Righteousness, ladies and gentlemen, is what protects and guards your heart. You better know what it is. You better know what it means if that's what protects the seat of your emotions and all that you are in your personality, what is going to guard your conscience in this warfare? What's going to guard the seat of your emotions? What's going to guard you? It cannot come from anything in yourself, right? It must be imputed righteousness that Jesus Christ alone gives that is your breastplate. That alone is what will protect your inner being. You need to revel in this this morning. You need to personally appropriate the active and passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ and the imputation of His righteousness to your account. You need to revel in it. You need to have joy in it. We need to swim in it. We need to apply the fountain of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, into our lives. If you know everything about justification, then just relax. My goal is to stir up in you a cause for you to remember what it is. For the rest of you who would say, Pastor, I have no reason, then you need to really listen. And I'm going to tell you something. Natalie tells me sometimes, be careful not to make too many extreme statements. Right? Don't you kind of... Because, I mean, I, I get it. I'm not a very passionate guy, you understand. So... I don't know if I'm going to have to apologize to her after saying this one or not. But I'm going to go ahead and apologize on her behalf before I say it, right? If you can't get excited about justification, you're probably lost. I'm just telling you, folks. If you can't get excited about righteousness given to you on behalf of someone else, wherein you did nothing to earn it, Folks, i got news for you. You need to check real deep to make sure you know the Lord of glory. I'm just telling you that. All right, did I do okay, huh? (laughs) She gave me the thumbs up. All right. Okay, here we go. What is the nature of justification? What is the essence of it? All right, you ready? Justification refers to that legal forensic. What does that mean? Forensic. That relates to a court of law. That's what that means, okay? I want to remind you this is all outside of you. Justification is not something that happens on the inside of you. Get that out of your mind. That's called regeneration. 
There's, there's a major difference in the two, okay? Are they connected? Well, yes. Can't be justified unless you've been regenerated, okay? However, there is a difference. What is the nature of justification? It is whereby in the court of law, God declares and pronounces and accepts us as righteous based on Christ alone, okay? This is not an infusing of righteousness into us, whereas we become righteous. It is not righteousness imparted to us whereby we begin to live more righteously. This is an external righteousness, okay? Whereby God makes a legal declaration not on what is internally true of me right now, but what is true in the court of heaven, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been put over me, and God declares me justified in his court all because of Jesus. That is justification. That's what the Bible means. It doesn't mean that he treats us just as if we've never sinned. How many of us have taught that all of our lives? It's way more than that. Because last time I checked, you're still a sinner. And we're still in the mode. So God, simultaneously, as you remain a sinner, when you repent and believe the gospel, you still remain a sinner. But in the court of heaven, when God the Father sees the Son, He sees perfect obedience. Perfect righteousness. Why? Because Jesus Christ has covered you. He has turned away the wrath of the Father. That is justification. Justification says that God has legally credited to you, conferred to you, to your account, the righteousness of the Son of God. And that had nothing to do with you personally. Understand this. This biblical truth is a glorious and right truth. The nature of justification is not us becoming righteous, but us being declared righteous so that when God looks at the sinner Philip Burden, I am simultaneously declared righteous, yet I remain a sinner, and God looks at me and my status in heaven is clothed in the imputed righteousness that is not mine, but it's the righteousness of Christ, and I have just as much accepted before God the Father as his Son. Now, if that doesn't excite you, something's wrong, wrong with you. Okay? Now you see, right? This is the absolute best news in the entire world. That, my friends, is the nature of justification. All right, second, what is the ground or basis of justification? Well, it's Christ's obedience to the law, which we call active obedience, and his submission to the law's punishment in death, which we call passive obedience. How many times did Jesus say, the end is not yet? My time has not come. In other words, he set his mind like a flint toward the cross. He knew what his mission was. Even though he was living in obedience to the Father's will and obeyed the law perfectly, he also had his passive obedience, his passion leading him, culminating in his death on the cross. So this satisfied the demands of justice in our place. What terminology? Don't turn, just listen. This happen- I'm, I'm picking Natalie back up. This happens to be her favorite verse of Scripture. 2 Corinthians, 5, 7, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen close. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You hear it? You hear the text? You hear what's going on? The Son of God comes. He lives a perfectly holy life. 
sinless in all ways, righteously fulfilling the law of God in every way, perfectly obeying his Father. And that righteous life that we could never live is then imputed to us, charged to our account, so that we can be acceptable to God in the heavenlies and then, wonder of all wonders, all of our sins, all of our thoughts, all of our affections, our conduct, our words are taken and imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he pays the just, just punishment for all our sin. Every sin. Every vile thought. Every foul word. Every unkind and cruel deed. Every immoral act. Every act of theft. Every act of violence. Every act of abuse that his people have ever committed, were transferred over to the perfect Lamb of God who took our sins, Colossians, and bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he did it in your place. Thus we sing with joy, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, that my sin, not in, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. This is why Paul can say this in Romans 5, 17. Just listen and go back and listen to the sermon again and find these texts. 5, 19. Listen to God's word. For as by the one man's disobedience, who was that? Adam. The many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many are designated righteous. Designated, made righteous. That is, we've learned the nature, the ground, or the basis, the perfect obedience of Christ. And now, what is the means of justification? It is faith alone in Christ alone. This righteousness cannot be credited to you by you trying harder. Are y'all listening? It can't be credited to you by you working harder. You cannot on your own righteousness or moral reformation reach perfection. You can't reach this righteousness. It will not happen. Faith is the abandonment of all hope in self. And it's complete reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the full weight of your sin. For all that you are. You understand that it's the full weight. Now, some of you feel like if you run on that wheel long enough as that little hamster, you're gonna something's going to click and you'll figure it out. You're going to run ad nauseum and you will never, ever, ever reach it. Why? Because Romans 3.21, by the works of the law, will no man ever be justified. I just, it just clicked in my mind that that's either verse 18 or 19 of Romans 3, not 21. Okay? You'll never be made righteous. That is a promise from God. A man cannot be made righteous by the works of the law. The hamster will run on that wheel forever. So, faith is the abandonment of all hope and self. And it's putting the weight, full reliance upon Christ to save you. So, it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone that saves you. So, hear this. In an absolute sense, it is not your faith that saves you. Some of you are like, give me that sketchy look. What are you saying, Pastor? Well, faith is the instrument by which you lay hold of it. It is the righteousness of Jesus that saves you. 
Because you can have faith in faith and faith in a lot of things that don't save you. The object is that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. When Jesus died for you, it is my belief that he actually purchased the gift of faith for you. It comes in a package. For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of yourself is a gift of God, not of works. Lest man should boast. The whole package of salvation is a gift of God, not of works. So, God counts sinners to be righteous through faith in Christ based on Christ's perfect blood and righteousness. And specifically, the righteousness of Christ accomplished through his perfect obedience and his death. Okay? And we use those terminologies, that terminology a lot. How are you saved? Repent and believe. What is repentance? It's a movement of heart and mind away from sin and to God. We may say it like this. It is a movement from unbelief to belief. How does that come? For by grace, uh, faith cometh by, and hearing by the word of God, right? So, repentance and faith. What is faith? That whole soul commitment and acceptance as Christ himself, as Lord, believing the gospel, right? Whole soul commitment into that. So, listen to Romans 5.1. When that takes place, the Bible says, well, I'm actually in Ephesians 5.1. That's a good verse, but not the one I want. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear it? Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the best news in the whole world. There's no greater news than this. You can be right with God through the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way you can be right with God. He satisfied all the demands of divine justice. The good news of the gospel that Paul proclaims is given to us clearly in Romans chapter 3. Listen to this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be found accountable to God. For by works of the law, it was actually verse 20, right? Not 318, not 319, not 320. I got it right and because I'm reading it. Okay, 320. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, made right in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When you get the knowledge of sin, you're guilty. All right? Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. So the gift of righteousness, according to Romans 5, 17, righteousness is a gift from God, and it renders us free from all guilt on that day that we eventually stand before God in end-time judgment. But right now, we live in the freedom of that already realized verdict, that our status in the heavenly places is one of complete pardon, declared righteous in Christ Jesus. So... Romans 5.1, again, will tell us of that peace we have with God. We've been completely forgiven of all our sins based on Christ's blood, Ephesians 1.17. We've been reconciled to God as friends, Ephesians 2.16 and Romans 5.10 and Colossians 1.22. We enjoy a new status as sons and daughters in heaven, Ephesians 1.5 and Galatians 4.6. Is this a sure defense of all the assaults of the enemy, whether they come from within or without? That you stand in the righteousness of Jesus. It is only this imputed righteousness of Christ that can make up a breastplate. 
That's going to protect you against the wickedness and the evil schemes of the devil. Now, there's a vital connection between being declared righteous through Christ and the ethical righteousness that flows out of us once we are saved. But I'm telling you, that's not the legal standing position. Justification is that. Regeneration is what makes you alive. Regeneration is what changes. If any man be in, he is a new. That didn't happen because of justification. That happened because of regeneration. Justification is away from you, apart from you. It is a legal declaration of who you are in Christ in the heavenly places. Again, there's a vital union. Yet we must affirm that a justified person is a person who is growing in ethical righteousness. Amen? Make no mistake about it, however. The iron or bronze strips of the breastplate are of no use to you if they're made up of your own righteousness. They have to be made up of the righteousness of Jesus. It's the righteousness of Christ that saves. It is the righteousness of Christ that protects the conscience, the affections. In his righteousness alone, we can have confidence. We can have the security before the throne of God. Do you understand this morning, church family, Christ alone as your righteousness. Please hear this. If you're asleep, wake up. Do you understand Christ as your own righteousness? I ask this for a simple reason. It's so easy for us to be right in theory, but misguided in everyday practice. This sound familiar to you? Because it sounds familiar in my life. Well, I sinned again. And we go to God and we say, you know what, Lord, I'm serious this time. I know it's sin. I'm, I'm real, real serious. And because of it, I'm going to read two extra chapters in the Bible tomorrow morning. How about this one? Lord, I've asked you for forgiveness 10,000 times over this one particular sin. Don't look at me spiritual because I know you're guilty. Everybody in this room, you're guilty, right? How can I prove that I'm really sorry for this sin? I'm going to spend a little more time in prayer today and I'm going to put a little more money in the offering plate and I'll actually be nice to somebody today. This looks more, folks, like Roman Catholicism than being justified before Almighty God. You're a closet Catholic. If you think you can do enough penance to be right with God, you can't. No way possible. That's what Martin Luther learned as he climbed the confessional stairs and calloused his knees. There's something I'm missing. And so he was reading Romans chapter 1 and he, he understood that you can, be, you can only be justified. How can God be both just and the justifier of men? How can a holy God save sinners? There's only one way. The righteousness of Jesus. There's only one way. The righteousness of his son. So... I say to you who are simultaneously existing right now before God as justified, and yet you are still a sinner. Do you embrace and live in the reality of the imputed righteousness of Christ to you? And some of you are thinking, well, you better watch out, preacher. Because what you're trying to convey to us is we can live like, any, we can live like hell. We can live any way we want to live, and it's going to be okay because God just forgives Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue, continue in sin that grace may abound? If we don't preach the gospel the way Paul preached it, we will never open ourselves up to that question. 
Hello? Are y'all listening? If you don't preach the gospel like the Bible gives it, then no one could ever say to us this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because it sounds like we can if I'm innocent in heaven, right? What does Paul say to that question? May it never be. If you know Jesus and he's in you and you're growing more in your walk with Christ, then you identify with Joseph. How can I do this sinful deed and dishonor my God? You identify with David after the fact. I have sinned against you alone, O God. There's other ramifications. There's other things to deal with with the consequences of sin. And that's a reality, folks. But here's what I want you to know. How do we ever? I will, again, ladies and gentlemen, until we preach the gospel the way Paul preached it, no one will ever be able to say about our message, go ahead and sin that grace may abound. Right? We know what Paul thinks about this line of questioning. May it never be. So if someone can't misconstrue this natural conclusion, then we haven't preached justification boldly or correctly. Y'all hear that? Are y'all staying with me? This type of message scare you? Because when I preach on justification like this, it does scare you a little bit that people will go out and try to live like dummies. Right? That you think you can just presume upon the grace of God. Actually, it makes me want to preach Hebrews. Pursue holiness by which no man will see God. It makes me want to preach this kind of sermon. Well, I just need to hack off my right arm if it offends me. As a matter of fact, it makes me want to pluck my left eye out. Right? That's in the Bible too. Right? But we're dealing with justification. People, we need to revel in the free, imputed righteousness that doesn't depend upon your performance. It doesn't depend upon how sorry you are about your sin. It depends on Jesus Christ and Him alone. We will talk about how Satan keeps people so crippled by his accusations that they can't even move. And it is as if God is saying to you through his word, don't you understand that you stand in the righteousness of another right now? It's the perfect righteousness of the perfect son of God. We certainly must deal with our sin, correct? Against you only have I sinned. How can I do this evil thing and sin against my God? But our status in heaven is right now before the Father, the perfection of Jesus Christ. If that's not enough, I want you to see this verse with your eyes. You ready? Take your Bibles. Do you have one? Would you go to the ball game without your glove? All right, here it is. Chapter 8, verse 1. Romans. There's only one that's this good. Romans 8, 1. I'm, at least you're listening, right? Revel in this, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good stuff. Praise God. No condemnation. So put on the righteous breastplate of Christ this morning. Okay? To those of you who are unsaved this morning, or maybe you're not sure, here's my question. Where is your righteousness? Where is your righteousness? God does require it. Stop and pump the brakes. How can a man be in the right before God? Listen to me. God requires righteousness. God requires it. 
And folks, let me tell you, if you think you can put on this side of the scale your righteousness, and you can put the righteousness of Christ on this side, and somehow it's going to balance out in glory, you are dead wrong. And that is biblically wrong. Just think about Jesus holding the law on one side, and you standing on the other. Not a chance. Not a chance. So, he's not going to wink and let you slide in. He's not going to do it. You must have a righteousness apart from the law, and it is given to you by Jesus Christ. It's not your own righteousness. As a matter of fact, Isaiah will tell us that your own righteousness is as of filthy rags before the Lord. I don't want to go into what that means. But let me just tell you, your righteousness has no chance. Period. It has no chance. Even on your best day. No chance. How do you want to stand before God? Naked before the eye of God in your own righteousness? Or do you want to stand in boldness and confidence, confidence clothed with the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? And know that you are accepted in the beloved because you have a great high priest whose name is love. Robert Murray McShane is one of my favorites. What an awesome old preacher of the gospel and a theologian. So, there's this poem. It's called Yahweh Sid Canoe. But it's given as a transliteration, which is the Lord our righteous. Jehovah would be given that way. All right. Contain yourself. Because I couldn't hardly contain myself. Are you ready? I was a stranger to the grace to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Sidkenu was nothing to me. Oft I read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But in when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Sidkenu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed him to the tree. Jehovah Sidkenu, t'was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me, my light from on high, then legal fear shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Sidkenu, my Savior, must be. My terrors all vanished. Before the sweet name, my guilty fears banished with boldness I came. To drink at the fountain, life-giving and free, Jehovah Sidkenu is all things to me. Jehovah Sidkenu, my treasure and boast, Jehovah Sidkenu, I ne'er can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by, my, by flood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever my God sets me free, Jehovah Sidkenu, my death song shall be. Yes! That's righteousness applied to you. Amen? Uh, anybody need to get saved this morning? If you're standing in your own righteousness, you must be saved. You must. Jesus said it, did he not? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Why? Because the Sadducees put all over the people that you've got to keep the law. 
Jesus said, no, no, you can't. Even if on, on your best day, come to Jesus. He's the only one. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. Yoke yourself to Christ. That's the only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus. Perhaps this is the day where you clearly understand that you've been living as a church member for 35 years thinking you're going to get to heaven on your own righteousness. Or maybe even thinking that it was, you've got a misunderstanding of what justification means. Maybe you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ at all. Folks, I'm asking you today. The gospel has been clearly presented. I don't think I can give it any clearer than I just gave it. I don't think you can make it any clearer than what the Bible says. Right? Forget about the man. If you go out of here thinking about the man who gave the sermon, you're missing it. You need to walk out of this church thinking about the God who gave you the word. Right? So please hear this. And for believers, stand therefore by putting on. Stand firm by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And in that last day, that's the only thing that's going to matter. Father, we thank you for your word. Dear God. Lord, if it pleases you in, in the quarters of heaven, by your grace and your calling, would you save a sinner today? Lord, would you save us? Would you justify a sinner today? Would you bring to life and justify a lost person today? And for believers, dear God, help us understand and be able to explain to others what it means to be right with God. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We stand together and sing, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. All I want to dear, build my life upon, for this world reveres and wars to hold. All I once thought pain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now. important enough for me to say it at this point. You can have your name written in the annals of church history in church membership and still die and go to hell. The question is, listen closely, have you 
trusted in the righteousness of Christ alone to save you. Y'all do understand that that's why people died during the Reformation. That's why people die in countries all over the world. Because they tell you, you can't be right with God apart from Jesus who lived righteously and took your place. And unless you believe in him, you will not have eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Hear this, and no man will come to the Father except through me. So please, in the quietness of your heart, let me tell you this. The devil's not going to tell you to surrender to Jesus. Just go ahead and pass that off. If the conviction of the Holy Spirit is in you right now, and you know full well you need to commit your life to Christ, whole soul commitment, not believing in self, trusting Jesus only, then you need to do it today. Today is the day of salvation. And I don't care about church membership. I don't care how many times you've been baptized. You can be baptized so many times that tadpoles know your social security number. But that does not guarantee you heaven. But the righteousness of Jesus does. Please listen. If you don't know the Lord, here's the invitation. One more time. Oh, to know the power of your risen life And to know you in your sufferings Died itself to become like you I just want to praise the Lord for minimal distractions today. Amen. As you hear something this important. I'm telling you folks. You will not hear a more important principle. Than the righteousness of Jesus given to you. Because there's no other way. That's why Jesus came down from heaven. Not because Americans are pretty good people. But because we were guilty. And our righteousness could never bring us to obey the law perfectly. Never bring us to obey God perfectly. But thank the Lord for Jesus. That's his mission and was his mission. To make us righteous. God is good. Amen. All right. Well, we got good news that Danny comes home hopefully today. Isn't that? He was up walking at 4 o'clock in the morning after he had heart surgery that same the day before. So that, it's amazing what they can do. Pray for Andy Ellett. Uh, Andy's struggling. Are you here, Andy? Yeah, he's up there. But he, he's one of the doctors at Cox, anesthesiologist, and we need him well. Right? Especially if anybody else wants to have heart surgeries. He's one of those guys. Pray for him. He's had a bout up and down. My daughter, my grandbabies are sick this morning. They're all home from church. She watched online. A lot of sickness going around. Pray for them. Shirley Bumgarner is coming home soon. And that's a huge blessing. I heard that this morning. So continue to pray for our church family. Uh, you're off tonight. All right. I think the youth have something going on. But no fourth Sunday night. I want to remind you that in March... That the, the, the Sunday nights will change. It'll be the first Sunday night, second Sunday night, third Sunday night that we will have church. 
the fourth Sunday night, and if we have the fifth Sunday night, which is four times a year, you'll be off on those days, okay? There's just more that we need to ramp up uh, and, and do at the church, and we feel like we need to be here on Sunday nights as well. So uh, fourth Sunday night will be your uh, night off. There are some books in the back that I would really love for you to pick up. They're free, okay? Church paid for them, but they're free to you, all right? And it's on bringing together congregationalism and elder-led churches, which we are doing soon at our church. So I would, you really need to get one of those as a family, okay? I promise you, you can read it in a day or two. It's not that, it's real thin, okay? But you need to be informed, and, and that's a really good book that we order for you, okay? So if you'll go out to our Connection Center church family, you can pick up one of those books. Just get one per family, okay? If we run out, we'll order some more, all right? Well, God bless you. God bless. So is it going to be your custom if we don't have church on Sunday night to take a little extra time? Never mind. God bless you all. <laughs>